Okay, we are uh, beginning Acts for the next... uh, It's scheduled for six weeks. Um, After the new year, this is kind of dangerous. After the new year, there are four open weeks uh, for us to... For me to decide what, what we want to do. And um, I may steal those four weeks to spend more time in Acts. As I've been getting into the first chapters, I'm like, ah, I don't want to rush through this in six weeks. Um, so we may spill over into the new year in our study of Acts, which would be good. I mean, there's just a lot to chew on in here. The more I read, maybe it's just because, um, you know, the time after the fast is there's such a clean slate. My ears feel wide open. I'm just... Every verse is kind of speaking more loudly than it usually does. Um, maybe that will die off and will taper away, but I, I hope it doesn't. Um, so anyway, that's where we're headed, and so we're going to hang out in Acts. We're going to tarry in the book of Acts for a while. Um, just a little trivia. The first sermon that I ever gave right after ECF was planted uh, was an introduction to the book of Acts. We had finished a study of Luke, and then we were planted on Easter Sunday, and then we spent, I don't know, it might have been four weeks or so in Acts. It wasn't very long. Um, but I'm having flashbacks of the UK uh, education auditorium the first week. It was fun. Who was there that first week? Yeah, yeah you guys were there. I remember that. Nice. All right. Where should I start? Well, let me get the outline out of the way. The outline of the book of Acts. Um, and then I'm going to talk about... What I want to do is, is give the outline, give some what-to-watch-for things in Acts. I think I have seven. They're not numbered. They're just bullet points. Of, there may be seven. And then I want to walk through a couple things in chapter one that were particularly standing out to me this week um, and kind of line up with some of the things that... Um, I was hearing and others were, were confirming uh, through the course of the fast. So the outline of the book of Acts. Remember, this is part two of the Luke-Acts, uh, not a trilogy. What is it? The Luke-Acts something. Du- du- duology. Um, Luke, a, a big part of his story, a big part of the way that he tells the gospel is Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. That's the, that's the end goal. The book of Luke opens in the, book, in, the, in the city of Jerusalem, and it climaxes in the city of Jerusalem, and that's where we are at the end of the book of Luke. And the book of Acts can really be seen as going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's from verse uh, 1-6, I believe. No, 1-8. But chapters 1 through 5 are in Jerusalem. And it's the Jerusalem church. It's largely those first disciples, particularly the ministry of the 11 plus Matthias, um, to the Jews in Jerusalem, to Israel. All right? It ends, that period ends with the martyrdom of Stephen and there arises a great persecution And those Jews, those believers, those few thousand of believers are scattered then into the surrounding areas. And so chapters 6 through 9 have to do with the persecution and the early expansion of the church. So this would be Judea and Samaria, the the 
kind of greater Jerusalem area. Chapters 10 through 12 deal a lot with Peter, and particularly the calling of the first, the, the ministry to the first Gentiles. There's this first wave of Gentiles, and Peter, of all people, the apostle to the Jews, receives a revelation of God's desire to usher in this wave of Gentiles. And it's at the end of that section that Saul uh, is converted. And then, I'm sorry, it's at the end of the previous one. Saul's converted in chapter 9. Then we see Peter uh, begin to understand what God's will really is for the Gentiles. And then Paul comes back into the scene. And Paul is pretty much from chapter 13 to the end of the book. It's it's. It's the story of Paul and his missionary journeys. And there's kind of two main parts to that. 13 through 21 are his missionary journeys. He has several, and he goes around. um, They they kind of increase in size and distance. And then chapters 21 to 28 are Paul's journey to Jerusalem, but then from Jerusalem to Rome. Okay, so this is kind of a beautiful symmetry that Luke is all pointed toward Jerusalem and Acts is all pointed from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and it ends up in Rome, which is the center of the Gentile world. Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish world, and Rome is the center of the Gentile world, and that's where we end up. And then from there, it's the story of, it's our story, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, from the Gentile world all over the place. Um, so it's a, it's a great outline when you think of it in terms of just the, this increasing radius of influence that the gospel has. Um, and again, in chapter 1-8, it's a, it's a great, a lot of people point to this as the outline of, of Acts. The ho- you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So what to watch for as we read, uh, just generally, um, from, in the whole book, what to watch for. Number one, for sure, is the activity of the Holy Spirit. The activity of the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? What does the Spirit say? How do people refer to the Holy Spirit? I would suggest circling any place where the Holy Spirit is in the book of Acts. It will help you see whose story it really is. It's the story of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Number two is... The formation of community, all right, that's a major, a, a major aspect of the book of Acts. The formation of community, but it's the formation of community around the mission of witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. This is what, this is what binds people together now in community. Across all sorts of different boundaries and, and borders. Number three is what to watch for, the Jewishness of the first church communities. We can't, we can't underestimate and we can't overlook the Jewishness of the story, all right? They're there in the upper room and they say there's 11, there were 12, now there's 11. We need a 12th. Why did they need a 12th? Because they saw themselves as the new Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus had told them as much. You will sit on 12 thrones judging the people of Israel. So we need a 12th. We are the new Israel, okay? The apostles were the new 
sons of Israel. Um, this is first and foremost the story of the Jewish Messiah. All right? The Jewish Messiah. And we have to wrap our minds around what the Jewish Messiah is if we're to understand what it means for the Gentile world. All right? And this is so clear. Even in Paul's presentation of the gospel to the Gentiles, there's an understanding that this man who is the Jewish Messiah is the king of all the earth, of all nations. The first quarter of the book shows the apostles sent to Israel to continue Jesus' work of calling Israel to a final decision. Are you going to receive the, the Davidic king or not? Are you going to follow and bow your knee to the one who sits on the throne of David or not? In Peter's first sermon, you see, he says very clearly, God has made him both Lord and Christ, that's the Messiah, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He sits on the throne of David. He quotes David and says David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about this guy, the one who has risen from the dead. And we'll get into more of those um, sermons as we go. Number four, the issues raised by the prospect of a Jewish and Gentile blended community. This is a major, major issue in the book of Acts. And it's also a major, major issue often overlooked in Paul's letters. The issues raised by the prospect of a Jew and Gentile community. (laughs) The Torah was all about drawing lines between me and them, us and them. And there was good reason for that. There's a difference between good and evil, holy and profane, clean and unclean. These were very important distinctions. But those had turned into barriers between the outside world and God when what they were supposed to be were channels through which the blessing of God went into the earth. And so the Jewish nation has to completely revision, reimagine what it means to be the holy people of God in the midst of the Gentile world while mingling with them, eating with them. It was a big deal for Peter to eat, even eat with Gentiles. We're not talking about like a bacon dinner. We're just talking about eating anything, even kosher food with Gentiles. Table fellowship, okay? This Jew and Gentile relationship was the first and perhaps greatest challenge to unity that the church faced And I would suggest that it's the greatest challenge to church unity that the church has ever faced. It puts denominational squabbles to shame. A Jew becoming unified with a Gentile in the worship of Jesus, the Messiah, was radical. It was revolutionary. It was so radical that the stewards of Torah, the guardians of Torah, were putting people to death for saying otherwise. That's how it was. It was a capital offense. Some of these things that were going on in the eyes of of the the current day Pharisees. Number five, what to watch for the content of the proclamation of the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed, what are they actually saying? Right. We often talk about we need to go share the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. We're a people of the gospel. This book will give you 
great, uh, great sermons, great presentations of the gospel that, like the book of Psalms, is to, is to shape your prayer and your worship. These sermons should shape the way we proclaim the gospel. They should inform the way that we present the gospel. Far more than any tract or evangelical formula, although there's some, there's some decent ones out there, you know, the Romans Road, the Little Cross, the Bridges, the Gap, all those things. But those things should never inform our presentation of the gospel more than what we see here in the book of Acts. The proclamation of, this is as pure a proclamation as you can get. And just to borrow from a couple points prior, it has a lot to do with Jewishness. <laughs> the Messiah. You have to explain the Old Testament story as part of the gospel. You have to. You can't get around it. People can't understand why Jesus is such an important person if they don't understand the whole story of God. That's why we need to understand the Bible, understand the Old Testament. Number six. Six? Yeah. The response of the surrounding world. How do people respond to the gospel? There's increasing, through at least through the first third of the book, there's this increasing antagonism. First it's like, ah, who are these people? And then it's like, well, bring them in here. Tell them to stop doing that. And then it's like, bring them in here. Tell them to stop doing that and then beat them. And then it's grind your teeth in rage at them and stone them. Right? There's this increasing intensity of persecution as we go on through the book. And it turns into, it turns into mass uh, persecution and, and death sentences. And Paul, Saul was one of these people breathing threats against the disciples. He had received official, uh, official, official sanctioning to carry out, drag people in before the courts to persecute the church. So the response of the surrounding world... In this, and, and keep in mind, there's different parts of the world that respond in different ways. There's the secular authorities, the Roman world, all right, and the local governors. But then there's also the religious authorities, the religious institutions. That's another kind of squabble. So you never, most of the persecution, in terms of like the dangerous life-taking persecution, actually comes from the religious institutions, we think of, you know, Caesar and all the... But, yeah, that was bad. But who was behind all of that were the religious institutions who felt threatened by uh, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of Jesus as the Messiah. But then you also see some of the intellectual and more Hellenistic and philosophical paradigms that people lived by. They respond in a certain way. There's worldly wisdom around. And Paul especially is going to confront the worldly ideas. So we've got the world of, of uh, secular politics, we have the world of religious institutions, and we have the world of ideas and philosophies. All are going to be confronted with the proclamation of the gospel and respond in very different ways. But there, there the gospel goes. It just goes out into all the world, into all those different places. And truly, the sower goes out to sow in the book of Acts. Finally, Number seven, what to watch for is diversity among the early churches. All right. The gospel is finding its way into every sort of cultural and social setting. A lot of times we get this kind of monolithic, overly simplistic picture of the New Testament church. 
Well, it's, it's not that easy. Okay, when, when Paul goes to, from place to place to place, he brings this new word of the gospel of the Messiah. And there's a whole, I mean, just like from city to city, there's a whole different set of issues that that brings, right? And so it's a very diverse thing, especially when you start to get into reading Paul's letters. He has to address people in very different ways. And it's just, it's, there's simply not this glowing picture of, well, we need to get back to be like the early church. Well, which early church? <laughs> Which one are you talking about? The church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, that church in Jerusalem? Well, you can't be like them because they were strictly Jewish. And it wasn't until a little bit later that they started letting Gentiles in. You know, so who are we, who are we supposed to be like? It's diverse. All right. And this actually should give us great hope because a lot of times we see our own age as a very complicated and diverse world. The world of Acts is just as complicated and diverse as our own. And that should give us great hope because the kingdom was growing. People were being added to the church daily. Um, the, the disciples were being strengthened. And the whole church was growing up and go, it was going out into all the world. It was still going despite the world, uh, despite the, the complexity and the confusion of the world around. All right, so that's what to watch for, kind of to set the tone as you're, as you're reading and I hope you do the readings um, on, the, on the calendar or the schedule. Uh, but I also hope that you are back and forth and, and digging deeper into some passages that really stick out to you. And by the way, if, if uh, through the course of all this, if something sticks out to you and, and you want to talk about it more, just email me. I, like, uh, I love to hear you know, what people are trying to chew on. And uh, that, that can be a really good thing uh, for us to, to go in that direction. For a week or two. Okay, so chapter one, I just want to talk about a couple things in here. Remember where we left off in Luke, and I just read part of it tonight before communion. Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry, according to Luke, journeying to uh, Jerusalem in order to establish the kingdom once and for all, the eternal kingdom, the one that was promised to David. And this happened in a very different way than anyone anticipated. He got up on a cross and died. <laughs> and those two guys walking to Emmaus said, well, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to establish the kingdom. Uh, but now he's been dead for three days. And that's that. I guess it's just another one of these zealots that comes, makes a noise, and then goes off into oblivion. But Jesus rose from the dead, and he's standing there, and he's explaining for 40 days to his disciples what it all means. And he says, no, my death didn't indicate failure. My death indicated actually that I'm truly the Messiah. Particularly the fact that God has raised me from the dead. It says that God has set his seal on Jesus. God attested. God said, this is the one by raising him from the dead. That was God's final word when God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. When he was baptized on the, on the transfiguration. He said, this is my son, listen to him. And when he went into the ground, he said, this is the one, watch him rise from the dead. This is the confirmation we have from the father that this is the one. This is my son. This is the man of all men. And this is the one after whom I'm going to create, uh, in whose image I'm going to recreate humanity and fill the earth as I've always wanted to do with the glory of the image of God. And it's now, 
It now has a face and a name, and that's Jesus. So he rose from the dead. He explained to his disciples how the death and the resurrection, that's what the whole story was talking about the whole time, right? The Psalms, the old, all the Old Testament. It, was it not fitting that the Christ would suffer and then enter into his glory? So they finally understand that. And then he says, it says, uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's an important word. He began, everything in Luke is the beginning. The book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus is doing and teaching. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. He wanted to make sure that they were sure that they, they knew what they were seeing and that they knew what had happened. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. He says, we're establishing the kingdom of God. And he speaks to them about the kingdom of God. And it reminds me of the 40 days that Moses spent on the mountain. He was getting a vision of what? The temple. And the law. This is what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He was revealing the kingdom of God. The, the way of life. The, the kind of, of rule that, that God has uh, over his creation from heaven. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. They were to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be baptized in water? It means you are submerged, immersed in the water, that you are cleansed, and that you are raised and you walk in a new life. Well, this is what they were to undergo in the Holy Spirit, to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, to be cleansed, by fire, as we sang, to be cleansed and forgiven and purged and to be set loose to walk in this pure life in the, in the uh, power of the Holy Spirit. They were to be baptized in it, not just to kind of have little glimpses here and there. Remember in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on someone for a period and it could come on some people for strange reasons, <laughs> strange times, even, even people who weren't people, a donkey. The Spirit could just come on. And it, there was this very sporadic thing. But he says, you're going to be immersed in it. You're going to be swimming in the Spirit. And it's going to cleanse you, just like you're baptized to cleanse your body in water, ritually. In the fire of the Holy Spirit, it's going to cleanse your whole person. Water can't get to your spirit, but the Spirit can. And you can be cleansed, spirit, soul, body, by the Holy Spirit. And what baptism does on the outward way to cleanse your body ceremonially, ceremonially, the Holy Spirit does for our whole being and sends us out into the world. So he says, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And they said, when they had come together, they asked him, will you at this time restore the kingdom? This was their big question. This was the whole thing that they were looking for and waiting for. Are we going to now be on top? Are we going to drive, throw off the oppressors? 
Is Pharaoh going to be thrown into the sea? Is Caesar going to be deposed? And he says, guys, (laughs) it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, in other words, you're not going to know when. All right? You're not going to know when. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Okay? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? He says, hold that thought. Now, you're going to receive power, and you're going to be my witnesses. And that's what, they were, that's what he ordered them to do. That, those were their marching orders. And their response is awesome. So he goes up into heaven. It says he, he, uh, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them. So they said, hey, is it time for the king to be, to be restored? And he says, uh, that's not for you to know. Now you're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. See you guys. Whew. And they're like, So is he going to restore the kingdom or not? But here's what, here's what he did. And the, the angels, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? You've got work to do here on earth. Don't long for your departed Lord. He keeps telling you that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. In the book of John, it says, It's to your advantage that I go away because when I go, I can send the helper. I'm, to, I'm limited here by, by my humanity. Jesus was fully human. I'm limited here. If I go to heaven, I'm going to receive from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and I can pour that out. And then I can be everywhere at all times, in you all, on you all, through you all. Guys, you want me to go. <laughs> I'm telling you. Just wait. Just wait till you receive the Holy Spirit. This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Karl Barth calls this. And then we enter into this period of a significant pause in history. Jesus has come. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us the mission of being his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it's up to the Father when he comes back. All right? This should be encouraging to you. Hey, it doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter who has calculated when the rapture is going to happen or what. The orders are the same. Jesus' commands are the same. Wait for the Holy Spirit and go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Preach the gospel until I come. And it's not for you to know the times. Right? Because when we know the end date, we start to slack. You know, it's senioritis. It's the, it's the, we get senioritis. When we know when the end is coming, we start to just mail it in. Jesus says, it's not for you to know (laughs) the end date. You get to work by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so their response, this is a great, their response to Jesus' marching orders, oh man, we got to go be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. What do they do? They return to Jerusalem. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, 
together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They've learned something. (laughs) They learned something from those three years with Jesus. Jesus said, the Father will give the Spirit to those who ask. Jesus said, be persistent, be impudent in prayer. Jesus said, always pray and never lose heart. And so when he says, you need the Holy Spirit, they said, oh, we need to to pray. We need to ask for the Holy Spirit. He said other things like, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Will not the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So they've learned something. Being with Jesus, and Luke emphasized this so much, Jesus' prayer life. He lived, his ministry was absolutely punctuated by prayer. Seeing how he went about his work had convinced them the secret to effective ministry. They, they took something away. <laughs> they, were, they were very thick at times, but they took something away. Right? And this was something that was begun by them asking, Jesus, teach us how to pray. We see this as so significant in your life. And so here, when he says, go, they go pray. But they've learned this. That the secret to effective ministry has very little to do with human energy and capacity. The secret of effective ministry has very little to do with human energy and capacity of personality. has very little to do with busy work and strained effort. Luke also gives us the wonderful story of Mary and Martha. That you don't go and get distracted with much serving. That's not the point. The point isn't busyness. The point is being filled with with the very presence of God and living out his life. Has everything to do, success in ministry has everything to do with prayer, patience, patient prayer, (laughs) and waiting. And the Holy Spirit empowerment that follows that. We We have to lay down our efforts, lay down our plans And be filled with the Holy Spirit. And move as prompted by the Holy Spirit. Luke stresses this so much in Jesus' own life. And Jesus is telling his disciples, all who would be his witnesses, to do the same thing. Go and pray. And ask for the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his time on earth, he prayed and asked God for the Holy Spirit. And then he would go heal. He would drive out demons. He would bring the kingdom to bear in the earth because he prayed and asked God for the Holy Spirit. That's how he did his ministry. And that's how his disciples and his apostles were going to embark on their ministry. All right, so there's a lot, of, I think, to, to chew on here. And I want to bring um, some application for us. The first and, and most crucial question is this. Is the aim of your life to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus? Is that the aim of your life? I mean, that's why Jesus has kind of paused history. That's why Jesus has tarried for 2,000 years. So that his followers could go and testify to his resurrection to the ends of the earth. That's why he hasn't come back yet. 
Is that the end of your life? To live out the gospel. Right? It's not just giving sermons, not just standing up and preaching, but it's to live out the gospel in our time and our place so that people can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Do you see this as the appointed task? This is your calling. This is the calling of every disciple of Jesus to witness, to bear witness to the resurrection. This is the appointed task and activity of human beings. (laughs) Just like be fruitful and multiply, that's what they were to do. This is what we are to do. This is what we are for. This is why we have been created. In the time between Jesus' ascension and his return, this is be fruitful and multiply. This is our reason for existence. But I, I know our church, and I don't think that's the... I think we, we, get a, I think we, we understand that. I think we do believe that. I, I know people, and, and that captures your heart. I can say confidently that, that your heart is captured by that. By and large, in this church, our hearts are captured by that mission and task that Jesus has given us, the vision of that. But I believe our weakness is not so much from an inability to affirm the goodness of that and the rightness of that and the centrality of this mission to our lives and to our community. Our weakness will be trying to do it without first being clothed with power from on high. All right, and this is part of what was on my heart coming out of the fast, that um, we see the vision, and it really captures us. But I, I, I do feel like that there's a weakness in us where we try to do these things either in our homes, our families, in our communities, in our places of work, We try and live out the mission without first truly being clothed with power from on high. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit to do that work. And so the the risk of that, and I'm I'm not saying that there's any egregious case of this currently, but the risk of that, that, if that grows, if that's the trend of how we live, is we either become misguided in the mission where... We end up building a church around ourselves, and it's kind of in our own image, and it's self-serving. All right, that's a misguided walking out of the mission. It's just self-preserving. Right? We've become pharisaical, if that's the case. We're just preserving this thing because we know what it should look like. Or we busy ourselves with things that we think are beneficial, but really only serve our narrow idea of what the kingdom is and what the mission is. All right, so if we're not clothed with power from on high, we can either become misguided, and that's what that looks like, or we become burned out. We throw ourselves into the work, and it's just simply unsustainable. We say, yeah, every waking minute of every day, I'm going to be preaching the gospel, and that doesn't last very long if we're not waiting on the Holy Spirit. Tarry in Jerusalem until we're clothed with power from on high, because our energy gets sapped up pretty quick when it gets into the work of the ministry. And then it just ends up worse than before. We burn out and we give up. We lose hope. All right? It's like we start, we start at sprint. We start a marathon at, at, at sprint pace. And then you just you can't finish the race. There's no way. You, you've used up all your energy 
and more so. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Before any of the work happened, before one of those thousands of souls were added, all these together, with one accord, devoted themselves to prayer. If we plan any action without also resolving to pray and not take action (laughs) until empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're going to fail. If we plan anything and we don't build into the plan waiting on God to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're planning to fail. Um, JP told me right before the fast, is JP on here? Is he here? Let's see. Oh, I see J.P. Barlow. I hope he's listening. Uh, but J.P. told me during the fast that he was seeking, uh, the phrase that he used, I think, was uh, purity of purpose. Purity of purpose for his family. That there's, He and all of his family would be, any decision that they, they do would be purely and devoted to the, to the purpose of the kingdom. Whether that's you know, leisure time or whether it's actually sharing the gospel with people or, or whatever. And all plans. Um, were to be purity of purpose. And so I was kind of chewing on that. I was like, that's pretty good. And so on Friday night of the fast, when we were uh, praying, uh, people were praying for each of the churches, and Andy Martin started to pray for ECF. And he was praying, you know, kind of generally, and then praying for for me, and it was really encouraging. And then he started to pray that, he said, I I really have a sense that ECF is going to undergo a time of purification. I was like, okay, there, there we go again. There's that word again, purity, purification. Particularly, I think he said purification to see who, who's really in or who's really about the kingdom. And I, you know, I, I put those two together. And I was like, I think, I think this is where we are. And then I started reading Acts and this, I think this is a word, of, a, a word from God for our church. Um, I believe we should all be seeking a purity of purpose. That we should be on mission. We should understand the call of God for, for anyone who would be called by his name and that we would give ourselves to that. Um, that there would be, as uh, it says in Timothy, a, a, a godly simplicity to our lives. That we're just, we're kingdom people. And there's a lot that we happily miss out on. When it comes to the world, when it comes to religious good things. There's a lot we happily miss out on. Because we are kingdom people. But here's the question. And here's the challenge I have. And I hope you're listening, JPF. Is he there? Somebody texted me. Yep, he's listening. <laughs> um, so here's the question. Where does the purity come from? Where does that purity come from? How is it attained? We can't purify ourselves. We can't go away and just get a vision of what a pure church looks like and come and try and enact that in our lives. Where does the purification come from? The only possible source of true purification is the Holy Spirit. 
We can only have purity of purpose as the Holy Spirit purifies our purpose. We can only walk in a kingdom life if we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and what is worldly in us has been burned away and the power from on high has clothed us. Then we can go and have purity of purpose. But we can't, we can't work ourselves into purity of purpose. We can't idea and brainstorm ourselves and any other worldly strategy. We can't do that. It will not be pure. It will be tainted by our own narrow uh, perception. So, I believe God is calling us to, to be purified in our purpose. But he's calling us to not to plan and to act and to be strident in our efforts and, and everything, be vigorous. He's calling us to pray and wait. Pray and wait. And as we pray and wait, that's when our purpose becomes purified. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence, and then you will receive power to be my witnesses. And then you will be able to be the people of God. All right, so I think this is, this is, a, a, this is a great place to end up, great place to be. People of God had purity of purpose. They had all things in common, right? But first, they waited and prayed in one accord together. And so what I'm calling us to as a church is to be serious about waiting and praying together. All right? And I'll just give you a couple very practical ways to do that. Um, the first is we, I haven't uh, underscored this in a while, but we have a weekly fast. You know, it's, it's just a 24-hour, you skip, basically you skip two meals on Wednesday. Dinner to dinner on Wednesday. And um, I want to I wanna challenge us to, to reincorporate that into our lives. If, we, if we've gotten off of that, if any of you have gotten off of that, um, Every time I fast, I'm reminded of, it's good to fast. <laughs> Maybe not three days all the time, but 24 hours, once a week. That's good. That's a good thing. We lay aside our needs, and we say, God, come. And I, I don't know what will happen if we earnestly cry out to God like we did during the fast. If we do that once a week, every week together. I'd like to see what happens when we do that and see where we go. The other thing is, um, I know it's been a little weird with uh, getting a church building and all that. But I think we're settled here, at least for the next several weeks. Um, but we're, we pray at 6 o'clock before church, if all goes well, if there's no urgent need that we're having to, or fire that we're putting out. Um, we pray before church at 6. And I believe that sets the tone for the service and then the week and then home groups and, and a lot of different stuff. Uh, I believe the Holy Spirit really comes when we devote ourselves together to prayer. And so I don't want to call us to do something really unnatural as it comes to prayer and just become sort of weird prayer people. 
All right. But I do want to call us to understand that we honestly can't do anything (laughs) that God wants us to do unless we pray and ask for the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit's not just kind of guaranteed to you. It's a gift. And you ask for the gift and God's happy to give it. But if you never ask for the Holy Spirit, you will never have the Holy Spirit. And if we never ask for the Holy Spirit together, we won't have the Holy Spirit. It's not because God's withholding it. It's because we won't ask him for it. All right, so I want to call us to be serious about asking God for the Holy Spirit in just in everything that we do. Together, devote ourselves together to prayer for the Holy Spirit. And that's it. I mean, that sounds simple. But like I said, I I really want to see what happens when we do that. Uh, Because if the book of Acts is any indication, some pretty awesome things can happen when we do that. When a few people do that. Uh, and really devote themselves together. So I believe um, this is a good word. And I'm challenged by it. I want to give myself to it. And I want to call all of us to, to give ourselves to this. Um, and home group leaders, you guys can figure out if you want to apply this in any unique way to your home group. Uh, just based on the mix of people that you have. Um, Acts one fourteen. Maybe we could all start by... Memorizing it. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That's it. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. That's where it all started. We sang about it. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. It's from Isaiah. This is an ancient promise that those who wait on the Lord will receive strength, will soar on wings like eagles. This is a promise that God has always wanted to pour out. And it's one that he has poured out. And so we of all people should take advantage of uh, the free gift of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out onto all flesh. Young men, old men, women, everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. And ask that you would, uh, Lord, send the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you'd send the Holy Spirit into our lives. That you would baptize us in the Holy Spirit as a community, God. That our friendships would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That our family life would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would purify it and empower it, God. Lord, those are two things we cannot do. We cannot purify ourselves and we cannot empower ourselves. That comes from outside of us. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we call upon you and ask that you would invade our lives. That you would, um, uh, again, Lord, purify us and empower us for the work that you've called us to do. Lord, we want to be a church that does not have a form of godliness but denies the power. We want to be a church that has the power and lives godly lives because of it. And Lord, we don't want to live to a form. We don't want to live to uh, just a good brand of church that we've settled on. Lord, we want to live to the power of the Holy Spirit and be your witnesses in this city. We want souls to be added to the church because of our testimony, God. Lord, we want to upset the, uh, the authorities and the, the religious institutions that would seek to stamp your name out, that would bring your name low. Lord, I pray that you'd make us an offense to those who are opposed to you. 
But Lord, I also pray that you'd make us a beacon of hope for those who are searching for truth, for those who are searching for life. Lord, for those who are confused and don't know really how to live in this current age, Lord, make us a source of hope. Holy Spirit, make us a refuge for the lost. Give us eyes for the harvest, God, in this time. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.